We're working our way through increasingly more narrow. That sounds like a backwards way to say that. We're working our way through, you can't say decreasingly narrow because it's increasingly narrow. You think about how a funnel works, right? <laughs> We're coming down the funnel. And so the widest part of the funnel is what does it mean to be a Christian? And Austin showed us last week that there's good reason for us as a church to use the Apostles' Creed as that marker, as that indicator that if someone believes, confesses faith in, and then we got to unpack that last week is what is that belief? What's really a trusting in, not just believing intellectually that the statements of the creed are true, but trusting them. I loved the analogy of the chair, putting your weight into it because you believe it will actually hold up, not just some polite religion that you can keep over there. Uh, We watched, what did we watch yesterday? We watched a YouTube video on a famous uh, on a chef and talking about his restaurant and he had this giant crucifix hanging up on the wall and at some point in the video he talked about how you know bread baking and pizza baking is such a failure prone activity anyway he wanted any good luck charm he could get and so he had the crucifix up there and he cut a cross into his dough before he let it rise and you, you just think that's so sad that's all I could think was how sad it made me that this man who considers the purpose of his life is just leaving it up to tokens and, and trinkets and not the powerful sovereign care of a good and loving God. And so we can put our weight into these things. And if the things onto which we put our weight are the things of the Apostles' Creed, we have good reason to believe that we are a Christian. But the Bible teaches more than what is contained in the Apostles' Creed. And there's a very common temptation to error whenever we talk about these layers of doctrine, the funneling effect. And the temptation to error is to say, the only things that really matter are the things that save you. Everything else, we'll just agree to disagree. It's not that important. It just causes division. And that's so sad (laughs) because if you think about what a relationship is, think about a relationship with someone you love, a parent, a friend, a spouse. If what you said was, well, I know the three most important things about that person and I'm going to have a relationship with them for the next 60 years, but I don't want to learn anything else about them. After all, I know the three most important things, so why would anything else matter? Would you expect that to be a full and rich relationship? No, it's it's going to be pretty superficial. And Scripture gives us so much more about God, about the categories that Austin outlined last week, that we should not want to say. Eh, the Apostle Creed is enough. I don't need to think about anything else. I don't need to dig any more deeply. I I, I don't care about that. It's just me and Jesus and no creed but Christ. And then you think, "That's, that's sad. It's not just wrong from Scripture. Scripture commands you to pay attention to all of these things. But it's sad. You're missing out. You're, You're settling for a far more superficial relationship than the one into which God invites you.
And so as we go down this funnel, we by definition start to become a little bit more exclusionary. We start to say, yes, there are those who are in the kingdom, they are Christian, but with respect to other doctrines we're going to talk about, they are ignorant or they are in error according to what scripture teaches. You say, well, well, who are you to judge that? Well, scripture says that that's exactly the sort of thing we are to judge. We're not to judge with self-righteousness. We're to judge with the measure that God uses. We're to judge as we desire to be judged by God, which is with grace and favor for, and forgiveness. But we are to look at what someone believes and to look at scripture and to buy scripture and the Holy Spirit say, is that the same thing or is what a person believes apart from scripture? What do I believe? And so as we move through the history of the church after Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament church, you start to see some diversity in doctrine. <laughs> you start to see some uh, a lack of unity doctrinally in the church. It wasn't, I don't want to say, it's hard to say it wasn't that big a deal, but for many hundreds of years, the, what we would call heretical, the views that are truly anti-scripture and dangerous to the soul, the heretical views that tried to pop up within the church were identified as such, labeled and dealt with rather quickly. So as you start to look at like the Nicene Creed, some, sometimes we read the Nicene Creed rather than the apostles. Well, what's the purpose of the Nicene Creed? It is directly to respond to heresies about Christ that were popping up in and around the church. And so leaders of the church, pastors and, and elders at that point said, we need more clarity in summary statement as to what scripture teaches about Christ so that we can say the opposite. This is not what scripture teaches about Christ. And so a lot of heresies, controversies within the church, you hear about church councils, you, you hear about uh, people um, being martyred for their faith. A lot of that is going to come either later or very, very early. And then there's this kind of middle ground in church history where there's not a lot changing. <laughs> so you have this great time of peace. But does peace mean everything is okay? Do we, does the, is the lesson of the Old Testament that as long as nobody's complaining, everything is going well? No. Uh, you, you can have people who teach peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so over time, the practices leading into the doctrines, very much in that order, as we'll talk about today, were leading the church astray. And astray means away from Scripture, not away from anybody's opinion, not away from tradition, what we had done in the past, but the church began to move away from Scripture theologically in an effort to justify behaviors that were already far from Scripture within the church. So the time before the Reformation, 
I've got Austin's notes up here as well as mine. And it says, a, a pot with little bubbles at the bottom, just about to boil, a room full of fumes, and Luther was the spark. Why is Luther such a big deal with the Reformation? Was he the first person to come up with these ideas of sola fide and sola gratia? No, he was the guy providentially in the right place at the right time to light the powder keg that had already been uh, teed up for this and was inevitable if the church was going to persevere in faithfulness. The Protestant Reformation is really about three significant areas of disagreement. One is ecclesiology. That's a big word. What is ecclesiology talking about? The theology of the church. Doctrines around the church. And so the reformers did not find support in scripture for the way the church was structured and operating at that point. Having the bishop of Rome, who's also called the Pope, having this bishop of this one place as the head of the church seemed contrary to the way God had operated with his people throughout history and the way that Christ operated when he established the church. There were 12 disciples, obviously. So you think about that as sort of a group effort. Uh, when you when you looked at the New Testament, uh, what we're reading in Corinthians, when you read the other epistles, the Pauline and the, the other New Testament letters, you hear about councils of elders. You hear about churches that are ruled by a plurality of uh, qualified and ordained men, not one man at the top. In the book of Acts, you have the Jerusalem Council, which which is what seems to be the first presbytery meeting in the New Testament, where you've got these this doctrinal disagreement. Are we going to say and do and believe X or Y? And instead of one person standing up and saying, well, as you guys all know, Jesus put me in charge. And so the discussion's over and here's what it is. No, you have rigorous debate and you hear from all these men and you have speeches supporting another and the group comes to a decision on here's what we're going to do. Um, certainly has a, a moderator, at least in that meeting, uh, but not a pope. Another challenge with the ecclesiology of the Catholic Church for the reformers was the idea that any man could be infallible at any moment. And and this is an important thing. One of the things that we'll talk about, you know, a lot of my background being around Roman Catholicism and the study of it, we need to be very, very fair to what is and isn't believed by the Roman Catholic Church then and now. No one ever believed that the Pope was infallible, full stop. If you ask the Pope to tell you how many Roman coins were in the jar for the raffle, nobody believed that he had the ability to tell you exactly how many coins were in the jar in the raffle. But from his office, when he was speaking as the Bishop of Rome, as the Vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ for the people, the doctrine of the church was that he could not err from that type of statement, from those positions. So he would say, and I don't mean to trivialize, but like there's a literal putting on of the Pope hat. And when I'm wearing the Pope hat, I am infallible. And when I take it off, I'm not making any claims to have any divine knowledge that other people don't have. But even that is very difficult to 
to wrap your mind around from Scripture. Questions about ecclesiology. We'll talk more about church government structure in a bit, but just do you understand what the objection was there of the Reformers? One man as the head of a church rather than a plurality. How did God operate in the Old Testament with his people? Moses was all by himself and never took counsel or votes from anybody, right? That's not right. Moses had elders. Even Jesus gathered his disciples around himself to go out and be representatives of his church. So ecclesiology, first problem. Second problem, and this was a big one, was the moral corruption. Even if the reformers had supported the offices of pope and bishop, they were not able to support many of the individuals who held those offices in their time in history. There was a lot of moral corruption. You could bribe many of the bishops for uh, divorce, which wasn't supposed to be allowed whatsoever. You could buy absolution from particular sins. Uh, Priests and bishops who were supposed to be uh, chaste and unmarried, not because scripture said so, but that was the position of the church. And yet they're having, they're fathering these children out of wedlock. Uh, Violent crimes were committed against some of their enemies. This is not to say that everyone in the Catholic church in a position of authority behaved that way, but there were many, there were enough that, I mean, it shows up in popular media. Look at the Godfather, look at, look at uh, books from the time, both fiction and nonfiction. This was a known thing that that level of power without accountability would create moral corruption. And it certainly was the case in the church. Now we should say the counter reformation. So do you know how that worked in history? We think about the Protestant reformation. Yay. Protestants. There's also after the Protestant reformation, what's called the counter reformation, which is when the Roman Catholic church responded to the Protestant reformation. They responded with some theological clarity But the biggest way they responded is by cleaning up a lot of this moral corruption. Uh, And so we need to give credit where credit is due. The Counter-Reformation, there were some rogue bishops, there were some bad popes after that time, but it, it was nothing like what it was in the couple of centuries leading up to the Protestant Reformation, where the, where the corruption was just widespread. And then, of course, theology. While the other two categories were probably the initial impetus for the Reformation, it quickly became a theological disagreement. And that makes absolute sense because when you're doing something wrong, is your tendency to just say, yep, I'm doing something against what scripture says and I sin boldly. Woo! Is that what you tend to do? Nope. What do you do? You justify it. You you justify it. You go looking for the scriptures. You go looking for the uh, exceptions to the rule. You go looking for why your situation is different. And this is actually an appropriate way to act. We're all little lawyers at heart. And so in in the response to our sin, we will try to create a defense for it. There are many doctrines in the Catholic uh, catechism that 
I think it is very fair to say, exist to justify a practice that was already in place and not the reverse. Not, we're starting with a bad doctrine, a misreading from scripture, and here's the action that is the consequence of that. In many cases in Catholicism, it was just the opposite. Here's what we're doing or have always done, and now we need to come along and create the defense, the justification that allows it. And in Catholicism, there's a, there's a very strong thread of intellectualism in Catholicism, the way there is in Reformed Presbyterian world. Doctrine matters, and logical consistency of doctrine matters. And so you can actually watch in Catholic doctrine the dominoes start to fall. And you can get out here at something that we would look at today and say, why would anyone ever come up with that doctrine? But you can trace the dominoes back. Well, because for that to be true, this has to be true, and this has to be true, and this has to be true, and we needed this to justify this behavior. And so you can follow, you can follow uh, selling absolution and indulgences, a practice, to the doctrine of purgatory. You can follow that doctrinal line across. Because... Catholicism is historically not a tradition that doesn't care about the logical consistency, that doesn't care. We talked about our background. Some of us come from theological traditions where you don't have to connect all these dots. You can just say the Lord told you or you can whatever. And that's not the case in Catholicism. And so because there's this thread of intellectualism that matters, their theology will often follow what was a practice. Sometimes the lines can be blurred behind these issues. I mentioned the selling of indulgences. That's a really good example of blurring the lines between these three problems. The selling of indulgences is an issue of theology because the bishop is claiming he has the power to forgive sins. Just as a, an object that can be bought or sold, a skill. Um, it's an issue of moral corruption because he's wanting to sell that power he says he has for money, to gain money. And then it's an issue of ecclesiology because anyone who declared that practice unbiblical could and would be cast out of the church because it was affirmed by an infallible pope. And so all of these issues can get tied together, and that is the uh, the powder keg or the... Uh, what did we say before? A room full of fumes where Luther would be the spark. Questions about how we got here? That is a significant 15-minute gloss on 1,500 years of church history. But you see where we are and what the problems are. All right. The basics of reformational theology, what's called Protestant Theology. Why is it called Protestant theology? Protest. Young people. Protest. What are we protesting? Sorry. I would say um, the unbiblical teachings of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. That's right. And I love the way you said that. Because was the aim of the Reformation the establishment of a new branch of church? So you have the church of you have the church that Christ established coming through history 
we're going to send the Orthodox over here for a minute. Now, now we're here. At, we'll use Luther for shorthand, although we were saying Luther's the spark. Luther's not the, the impetus for this. Was the goal of the Protestant Reformation to create a divide between Catholic and Protestant? No. What was the goal? Reformation. The goal was to take the church, Catholic, lowercase c, united church, and help that church draw closer to Christ through more fidelity with Scripture. And so Luther's 95 theses are not about, here are the 95 reasons why I'm taking up my stuff and I'm going home. It was, here are the things we need to be about fixing. Here are the things that are practiced and taught and experienced within the church that do not seem to me and others to be aligned with Scripture. And we need to get about reforming the church. All right, you've got handouts. If you don't, I think William has some extras. Stephen has some extras. The reformer's main objection to Roman Catholicism was not its Catholicity, but its centeredness on Rome. The reformers believed that they were more in line with Rome when it came to tradition. They, the reformers, believed that the early church believed, uh, they, the reformers believed what the early church believed about tradition, namely, that it was the church's consensus teaching on Scripture's fundamental storyline. Indeed, one thing in which patristics and medieval theologians were agreed upon was the notion that doctrine must be grounded in Scripture. Hence, those who affirm sola scriptura are more in line with the Catholic tradition than those who deny it. Rome is downright sectarian in its insistence that there were some truths or customs handed on orally to the apostles alongside scripture. Lowercase c, Catholic meaning universal, Catholic church. What makes us Catholic? There are lots of different opinions But the opinion of Christ who established the church and of the apostles who built the church on that foundation was that what made us the Christian church is what we talked about last week. (laughs) Scripture, this commitment to all truths finding their ultimate grounding and authority in Scripture. So as bizarre as it seems, we tend to think about schisms as whichever group is smaller in number, those are the schismatics. Isn't that right? Isn't, isn't that how we think of it? If you've got a big group of people and they split, whichever group is smaller in number, we say, well, they're the ones who did the, schis- the schisming. Is that logical? Aren't the ones who did the schisming the ones who changed the organizing principle of the group? If we decided to have a uh, 19th century baseball league and we're going to play with wooden bats and those little tiny gloves that I can't imagine you could catch a ball with, and after two games of that, eight members of the team decide, you know what, we like basketball better instead, and they go off and form their own basketball league and there's only four of us left behind, who caused the division? 
Is it the people who said, we signed up for a baseball league? We're playing baseball. No, it's the people who said, we don't want to play baseball anymore. We want to play basketball. Silly example, but the, the schism cannot be identified by numbers. It can only be identified by which group retained the originally unifying principle. Which group didn't change? Now, there's change on both sides as people grow and learn more from Scripture and clarify things. But that unifying principle concept is a big deal. And so that's why you'll hear sometimes people say, the church didn't leave Rome. Rome left the church. And that quote is the sectarian nature. The unifying principle became not scripture, but a institution established in central Italy with a particular set of leaders. And that became the unifying principle of the Catholic Church. And so, yeah, the goal here was never let's split off and make something new and different and better. The decision was, wow, we've really lost the thread and we need to pick it back up. That's what the Protestant Reformation is about. And so it's organized around five principles, the five solas. Now, how can there be five of anything? Because don't we put the word alone in all of them? And don't we say we're saved, we're justified by faith alone? So how in the world can we add four more phrases to faith alone? It's only faith, but faith is never alone. We are only saved by faith. There is nothing else that can save. But faith never appears in the absence of some other things. And so it's only faith, but faith is never alone. Faith doesn't exist in a, va- in a vacuum. And so these five principles help, help clarify the most significant differences between what Roman theology had become and what theology was most in line with what Christ and Scripture originally taught. All right, let's talk about the five solas. Faith alone, sola fide. What is justification? We use that word a lot. We should know what it means. What is justification? Yes, it is a declaration. It's a legal term for a declaration of righteousness. When the judge makes the judgment, that declaration, this is reality. Let it be written, let it be done. This is what is happening. Justification. A person being made, declared, righteous enough for Everlasting life with God is what we call justification. It's what scripture, how scripture uses that term. How can someone be declared righteous enough for everlasting life with God? 
What's that? Faith alone. Now, that can't be right, Kate. It's, it's got to be faith plus I do some really great stuff after that. What do you mean? It's got to be faith plus I am a theological doctrinal expert. Faith plus I've memorized the catechism. Faith plus I do more good stuff than bad stuff for the rest of my life. Faith plus, you see where this is going? None of those things. The only means by which God will declare someone righteous enough for everlasting life with him is faith in Christ. Why? Well, because God won't look at somebody who's 99.99999% righteous and say, that's righteous enough for everlasting life with me. God won't say that. That person, 99.99999% righteous, who tries to go into everlasting life with God, you know what's going to happen? Burnt up, blowed up, exploded out. They will cease to be. That was Isaiah's big fear in his vision, right? Oh no, this is bad for me. I'm in the presence of a holy God. I'm about to be blowed up. So if the only way that God can accept someone into everlasting life with him is if they are 100% righteous, how you doing? No bueno, not so good. But if God declares that by your faith in Christ, his righteousness is credited to you, that's how you can have everlasting life with God. It's in fact the only way you could ever have everlasting life with God. And that is why we say faith alone. Sola fide. Questions about that? And by the way, God's righteous, God's declaration about your righteousness can't change. You can't undo it. You can't lose it. You can't mess it up. You you can't counteract it. (laughs) You can't decrease it. It is an objective reality. And the actor in that event was God. So rest well and live out of a out of the overwhelming sense of love and devotion you should have that God would ever declare you righteous in Christ. What the Roman Catholic Church taught was the infused righteousness of Christ. And this can be part of the challenge of studying Catholic doctrine. Honestly, if you want to study Catholic doctrine as a caricature and just say it's dumb and nobody should believe this stuff, then fine, you can do that. But if you want to study Catholic doctrine for real and give it an honest evaluation against Scripture, it can be very tricky because we all use the same terms. If you said to a, a Catholic priest, we're saved by faith alone, he would say, amen. Oh, and that faith comes through grace. Amen. It's the how it's working that is the subject of the disagreement here. So Catholicism teaches the infused righteousness of Christ. We just talked about the imputed righteousness of Christ. An objective, all or nothing event where God makes it so by faith. Catholicism teaches that at a person's baptism, as they're baptized into the church, they are infused with Christ's righteousness. That's how they overcome original sin. Roman Catholicism believes in original sin as well. You're dead in your 
your sins and trespasses. You can't do anything to please God without God's intervention. The baptism is God's intervention as you're connected to his church. You're infused with righteousness that allows you to do good things instead of bad. You now have the ability to do good things instead of bad, which you did not have apart from that infusion of righteousness. You then have a twofold responsibility. One is to do good things. You use the righteousness of Christ to do good things. You see why this could be complicated if you're in a thoughtful debate with a Catholic. I need the power of Christ in order to live in a way that's pleasing to Christ. And we should all nod our heads. Absolutely. But in Catholicism, that discussion is on the justification side of the ledger and not the sanctification side of the ledger. It's part of the saving, not the life of the saved. So you're infused. You have a responsibility now to do good things. And then two, you have a responsibility when you do bad things to confess them, not just to Christ, but to Christ's authorized representative, the church, and to use punishment, what's called penance, to show your sincerity in that confession. And you've got to be careful here, because there's also caricatures of what confession and penance is in the Roman Catholic Church. It is a necessary, if you're a member of the Catholic Church, confession is a requirement. It's not an option. Going to confession is a requirement. Penance is a requirement because it is a necessary component of seeking forgiveness from the church for sins. That makes sense? So the two things you have to do. You have to do good things and you have to confess to the church when you sin, pay penance for those sins. And if you meet those two responsibilities throughout your life, God will declare you righteous enough on the last day. This gets really tricky, but if you think about justification as a cup and you need a full cup of righteousness to deserve eternal life with God. What we're saying as Protestants is that by faith, in a moment, God declares us righteous and our cup is full. Nothing we ever do will add to or diminish from that cup. We could say and think that our cup is full and by the ways that we live demonstrate that no, we actually don't have faith and we're not declared righteous and there are false sons in the pale of the church. But for the one who confesses Christ in faith, God declares him righteous in Christ, the cup is full. In Catholicism, your cup is filled full at your baptism, infusion with the grace of Christ. Everything you do for the rest of your life will diminish that cup you have sinned, or add back to that cup, you have done good, you have confessed, you have done penance to atone for sin, but your life is an emptying and a filling of this cup. You get, you get this? Because if we said to our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, only someone with perfect righteousness, a full cup, can inherit eternal life with God, do you know what they would say? Yep. 
Yep. The question is, how does the cup get filled? And we say it's filled by the one-time declaration of God, and they say, yep. And then we say, and it stays at the same level of completely full, no matter what I do over the course of my life. And they say, nope. Now we finally got to the disagreement. Cup gets emptied, cup gets filled back. You want to see how some of these doctrines tie together for a minute? What happens if you die, your body physically dies, and your cup is only that full? Can you inherit eternal life with God? No, it's not fully full. How's it going to get fully full? We need a place. We need a place where the cup can get fully full. There's got to be somewhere you can go for your cup to get full. Purgatory. Now we have it. How long does that take? Well, it depends. Is your cup missing this much? Or are you Paul Mulner? And your cup's like down here. Take a long time. So how can we make this not take so long? Let's make living people pray for you. Wait, wait. I got an idea. Whose prayers are better than living people's prayers? Saints. Saints who were already in the presence of God. If I really wanted to speed this thing up, I wouldn't just have you pray for me. I would get saints to pray for me. Now, again, I think this is important. It's a rabbit trail, but it's important because I want us to be fair about Catholic doctrine. They are not praying to Mary to save their souls. They don't think Mary can save their souls. They think Mary can pray for them and Mary's prayers for them can do work in filling up this cup. As can your prayers, just not as much as Mary because, I mean, come on, look at you. What could fill up my cup even faster? What if a pope or a bishop said, yeah, uh, these sins that caused water to leave your justification cup, even after you're dead, I'm going to absolve you of those sins. That water never left the cup in the first place. And if you're a pope or a bishop, and you have this ability and this authority to help people get their cup filled up faster to get out of purgatory and into everlasting life with God. And the people that can help make that happen are the living people around you, not the dead one in purgatory. And you've got to keep the lights on in the church or build a bigger church or a bigger, bigger church. You might just say, what if, what if you gave us a few dollars <laughs> And the result of those dollars were credited righteousness or absolved sins so that your dead relative's cup level gets filled up faster and they're not just hanging out in purgatory. You see how all that ties together? And it all comes down to what happens when God's... What what does faith do? What does faith do? Does faith fill you up? with a kind of righteousness that is your own, that's not your own to start, but that is your own to maintain and eventually complete? Or does faith result in God 
declaring that your perfect righteousness is all Christ's, none of yours, and therefore it is always enough. I think a good way to think about a lot of these doctrines is we just went through a whole lot of convoluted stuff. For the, like, the sins of doctrine, I mean, doctrine, doctrine can be complicated. Generally speaking, like, when you start getting incredibly complex derivative stuff going on where it's really hard to follow and it, you're wandering into Good and necessary consequence should go one leap, not four. When you're trying to decide if a particular action accords with Scripture and you have to do one hop to Scripture, that's okay. Paul did that in Corinthians last week. You should pay your pastor. Why? Well, because you don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That's one leap. Good and necessary consequence. Okay. I'm not sure as you get into the multiple leaps that you're going to be on solid ground. I think that starts to become more and more questionable. So the reformers were opposed to the view of the Roman Catholic Church on, on at least two grounds. Austin just hit on them, but I'll repeat. Christ paid for the sins of all his people on the cross, right? Christ paid for every sin of all of his people on the cross. Scripture says that plainly. So what are you doing in penance? You're repaying for a sin that's already been paid for on the cross? That's not just, and we know God is perfectly just, and it's dishonoring to Christ. Die better next time. Right? Because a better Savior... I wouldn't need to be punished for this sin as well. You would have actually taken all the punishment of my sin. And then we're sure of our salvation because the epistles teach plainly that God declares us to be righteous and that declaration by God is our assurance of salvation. That's what I said earlier. You have no assurance of salvation here. You can't. You can be very optimistic, but you can't be sure. Because you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. But if your salvation is because of Christ's righteousness and God's declaration of your own righteousness in Christ, you can be sure. Paul could not have told the churches to be confident in our salvation or that God has already declared us to be righteous if, if he, what he really needed was to put a big asterisk and a footnote on that that says, as long as... You follow this pattern. Austin mentioned at the big, uh, early in the sermon series, one of my challenges with 1 Corinthians, and it's a good kind of challenge for me, is that Paul spends the whole letter talking to them like they're Christians. He calls them brothers. And like, look at what these maniacs are doing in this church. Look at the way these people are living. Look at the disputes they're having. And they're writing an apostle saying, yeah, yeah, we have knowledge. And here's the knowledge we're going to lay down on you. Paul has to write back, like, brothers, you may say we all have knowledge. And Paul puts it in scare quotes. It, <laughs> the Christian life is a hard-fought battle with people in varying degrees of growth and sanctification. And there are people that you can look at and in the flesh you can say, ain't no way. And then I encourage you to go read 1 Corinthians. 
Paul's like, brothers, we're already in the Lord. What do you, wait, they're not in the Lord. Yeah, Paul says they are. Because they're declared righteous. And the fullness of their righteousness cup is not dependent on anything except the declaration of God himself. Yes, certain things will flow from that. Yes, sanctification is real. We do make progress. We become more and more like Christ. But not because our cup got empty and we realized we needed to fill it back up. But because we realized, oh, this is handled. I don't have to be so self-conscious and worried and guilt-riddled and doubt-filled. This is handled. What I need to focus on is a life walking in gratitude with my Savior. Put down the heavy load and walk with Jesus. Much better, uh, more freeing place to be. Well, I succeeded in completing one of the five solas in the lesson period that Austin gave me. So we'll pick up there. What questions do you have about faith alone? I wish the comment. I feel like sometimes we're like, we'll say, oh, Christ isn't good enough. We kind of brush over that. But a lot of times we think about like how infuriating that must be for God, that his son was humiliated, brutally murdered. I used to be able to go to mass So I would go Christmas Eve, Midnight Mass. And over time, and this was tough for me because when I became Reformed and sort of the cage stage and follow, a lot of my behaviors were uncharitable and reactionary. And so I had to guard myself that it wasn't just self-righteousness. But I got to a point where I really, I cannot go to a Mass. I cannot be in the room. It's called the sacrifice of the Mass. What we're doing is a covenant renewal ceremony a worship service. We have lots of different terms for it. And terms matter. They, they indicate what you think is happening. We do think a covenant is being renewed every week. And theirs is called the sacrifice of the mass. Where Christ needs to be sacrificed again. Now again, let's be, let's be very fair for a moment. They're not saying anyone else needs to be sacrificed again. Christ is enough. But Christ's work is not finished. And in the sacrifice of the Mass, it is being repeated. It is a repudiation of the book of Hebrews, in my opinion, which says we never have to go back to this. Once and for all sacrifice. And they say, of course, once and for all sacrifice. The Mass is just the continuation. It's the continual sacrifice of Christ for you. That's not how Scripture speaks of it. There is nothing I did this week that requires Christ to be sacrificed again. He was good enough the first time. He sat down having completed his work. And so, yeah, I mean, I, and that's me, a, a fallible human mess. How must Christ feel when someone says, hey, Jesus, appreciate everything you did. And we're going to do a little bit more here. Ah, oh, it, it's really challenging. 